Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. In this week's show, we will take a look at how French senators have hijacked France's controversial immigration bill, including a move to help out British second homeowners and toughen up the rules about bringing family members to France. But will there be anything left of their meddling once this bill becomes law? We'll also find out in which part of France you can expect to live the longest. You will likely be surprised by the answer, but we'll explain the reasons why. And you might have noticed we love talking about French food on this podcast this week. We'll hear why French patisserie makers are held in such high regard here and even have their own patron saint. We'll also find out how life in France will be getting more expensive next year. And with a new blockbuster film coming out about French Emperor Napoleon, we'll bust a few myths about the little man, such as was he actually little? I'm Ben McPartland, and joining me once again to talk about France is the team from The Local, Emma Pearson, Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Hi guys, thanks for being with us again. Before we go on, I've just got a special request for listeners actually. We want to produce a special episode based wholly on your questions about France, French culture and life in the country. You can send us your questions and any other suggestions via a survey that you can find in the podcast show notes or in the article on our website. We'll also send it to our email subscribers. So keep a look out. Emma, just tell us a bit about this special episode we want to do. Uh, yeah, we want to do something over Christmas and we just really want to hear from people about all of their questions about French life, you know, whether it's something practical or whether it's something a bit more about French culture, French people, French manners, of course, French food. We, we love a bit of French food and drink talk, anything you want to know. Exactly. So send us your questions and we'll get Emma, Jen and John to try and answer them. Keep a lookout for that survey. Right, let's move on. This week, senators have given the green light to government's new controversial immigration bill, except it's quite different to the original bill because the senators have added some key amendments of their own. To quote the leader of the right-wing opposition, the Senate has restored the bill's consistency by toughening it up. One of the amendments we've talked about on this podcast before, the idea of loosening visa rules for second homeowners, but there have been some others that are pretty eye-catching too, Emma. Yeah, there have. So the right-wing Les Républicains Party, as you mentioned, they have the majority in the Senate. So as you would expect, most of these are ideas that will please people on the political right. So just to give you a few examples, they want to end healthcare for undocumented foreigners. So at present, people who are undocumented or in some kind of irregular situation with their immigration, they can get basic healthcare through a scheme called Aide Médicale de l'État, where the state refunds hospital treatment and medication costs. The Senate wants to end this completely and leave anyone whose immigration papers are not in order with no state-funded healthcare apart from some emergency treatment. Right. They also want to restrict access to benefits. So at present, foreigners in France can access certain benefits, not all, but some, once they've been living here legally for six months. The Senate wants to up that qualifying period to five years to access things like family benefits, for example. 
talking families, we're also looking at family reunification. So visas and residency cards based on family reunification, such as the vie privé card, they would become more limited. You could only have your family member or your spouse join you after you've been legally resident for 24 months. And there would also be tougher financial requirements. And the senators also want to add an extra administrative procedure for children who are born in France to foreign parents who want to become French citizens once they become 18. And finally, the carte de séjour, the residency card that all non-EU work foreigners who are living in France have, these would become conditional on formally agreeing to respect the principles of the French Republic. And these are actually defined in the bill. So in order to get a card, you would have to agree to respect personal freedom, freedom of expression and conscience, equality between men and women, the dignity of the human person and the motto and symbols of the Republic as defined in Article 2 of the Constitution. Wow. A lot of amendments affecting foreigners in France. I mean, we've got an article on our website summing up what the Senate has put through for this bill. We need to mention this amendment that sparked a lot of interest amongst British second homeowners. Yeah, honestly, this is a little bit weird what happened with this. And we have kind of mentioned it on this podcast before. The amendment that we thought they were going to adopt was one that created a special visa, a five-year visa for all foreign second homeowners. That was rejected. Mm. There was another amendment that was also creating like a visa category for people who own property in France. That was rejected. The one they actually ended up adopting was a bit bizarre. It only applies to British second homeowners, so not like Americans, Australians, whatever, who own property in France. And it proposes exempting British homeowners entirely from visa rules. Basically, as far as I understand it, going back to the pre-Brexit days when Brits as EU citizens could just come and go as they please with no need for visa or 90-day counting. Now, the amendment didn't provide any details on how this would actually work or how you would kind of prove at the border that you were a second homeowner as opposed to any other British visitor. So we're kind of none the wiser about the details of that at this stage. Okay, so look, the big question is how important actually are all these Senate amendments and will they become law in France? Um, yeah, that is absolutely the the key question. I mean, these Senate amendments, like they make eye-catching reading, but just because the Senate has agreed something doesn't mean it will become law. This immigration bill, it now goes to the Assemblée Nationale and debates there are due to start in December. And the basic overarching principle is if the Senate and the Assemblée disagree, then it's the Assemblée that eventually has the final say. The Assemblée can and frequently does, in fact, strike out amendments from the Senate. And the government has already said that it intends to scrap at least some of those amendments that I just mentioned. Also, once the debates begin in the Assembly, there'll be a whole lot of other amendments and changes. And it's quite likely there'll be a lot of sort of political horse trading because the government needs the support of other parties if it wants to get these bills passed. But it is highly likely that some or even all of those things that I just mentioned will disappear. Senators put through amendments quite often whenever there's a bill going through Parliament. Emma, in the past, there's been, you know, a lot of news around, for example, a Senate amendment to ban the hijab, which made kind of international news. Right, exactly. So, I mean, the Senate often adds amendments that are basically just tweaks to parts of a bill that the lower house has already agreed on. So they might like add an exemption to certain things or just slightly tweak the wording of a bill. And these things usually do pass. But they can also add amendments that are basically a whole new policy on something that wasn't even mentioned in the original bill. And that is the example of the hijab ban that you just mentioned. So in 2021, the Senate tried to add an amendment onto the government's secularism bill, which made no mention of headscarves or any other type of training of religious clothing. And it tried to bring in a total ban on Muslim women wearing a hijab in France. The amendment was junked as soon as it went back to the Assembly and the hijab is not now banned in France. But it's these type of amendments that quite often make headlines abroad, especially in the US, because I think Americans tend to assume that the French Senate is like the American one has more power than it actually does. But it is often the case that if you read a 
a sort of eye-catching article about a mad-sounding law being introduced in France. Once you read the article properly, you'll see it's just an amendment in the Senate and there's no guarantee at all that it will actually become law. Although having said that, some amendments do become law. In 2013, senators added an amendment to an equalities bill that banned child beauty pageants, which were not part of the original text at all. That was adopted. So now beauty pageants for children under 13 are banned in France and pageants for 13 to 16 year olds need approval from the prefecture. And that's from the Senate. Really interesting stuff, Emma. Let's bring in John Litchfield, our political expert here. John, we're talking about this immigration bill and all these amendments from senators. What are these senators playing at here, John? Well, I think this is a bit different to the normal sort of interplay between Senate and, and the National Assembly. The Senate has some power, but less power. In the end, the the National Assembly, which is directly elected and the Senate is not, has the, the final say. But in this case, I think something rather strange is going in the background. I think in some ways, the Senate, which has a built-in centre-right or right-wing majority, is to an extent cooperating with or conniving with the Interior Minister, Gerard Darmanin, who's more right-wing than, than many people within the, the Macron coalition, who wants a tougher immigration bill himself and thinks that's the only way to get it past the right wing in the National Assembly. So some of these amendments, I think, are certainly being approved by Darmanin, some of them perhaps being inspired by him. And so it will now go to the National Assembly and Darmanin is able to say to the left side of his own Macronist centrist coalition, which don't like these changes, many of them, especially taking away the access to health for illegal immigrants, that kind of thing. Uh, well, this is fait accompli. We can't get the immigration bill unless we put these through. So I think in this case, there's a more interesting sort of interplay or a conspiracy, if you like, going on between the Assembly and the government and the Senate than in the normal case of, of the Senate tinkering with, usually with little effect, legislation that's presented to them. And usually legislation goes first to the National Assembly and then the Senate, but the government chose to give put this to the Senate first. Interesting. John, just on the, on the subjects of these amendments, like you said, some of them don't ever see the light of day when they're put forward by senators. Is this part of the political process or is this just opposition senators flexing their muscles? What's the point of it? Well, you get that in all governments, I think, in all countries. You know, you get a little bit the same in the House of Commons. And politicians sort of in the lower ranks of, of the Houses of Parliament um, or Congress, in the case of the US, who, who want to make headlines back home by seem to be doing things. So they put down ideas as amendments which never see the lives of day. A lot of that happens here as well. Um, often the reporting of them is causes the confusion, you know, and I don't want to criticise my colleagues, but often the reporters have made it seem as if there's a French government idea or there are moves afoot in France, you might read in the Daily Mail, to paint all donkeys blue. So it's as much that it should be put in context when they're reported. And not any, many of these things are self-publicising rather than real. Thanks, Emma. And thanks, John. And for anyone interested in keeping an eye on this immigration bill and how it actually ends up as law and what will be in the final bill, keep an eye on our website, thelocal.fr. Now, moving on, if you were to name the shops most synonymous in France, you'd say boulangeries, pharmacies, decathlon, maybe, and of course, patisseries, where you'll see posh cakes and pastries. Gen pastry makers, or patissiers, I think I pronounced that right, have been in the news this week in France. Tell us why. Well, yes, this week a patissière, that's supposed to be the feminine pronunciation, is in the news. Nina Metai, a 35-year-old French woman from Charente-Maritime, became the first woman to win the World Confectioner Award from the International Union of Bakers and Pastry Chefs. And the award has been going on for some 
92 years, so quite a long time. Okay, tell us a bit more about pâtissier in France, Jen. This is a, a pretty significant role. Yes, it is. So being a pâtissier is a big deal in France. There are over 33,000 bakery and pastry shops in France, and the sector employed over 138,000 people as of 2023. And it makes sense because there are so many French people that love their pastries. As of 2018, the average French household spent at least 350 euro a year on pastries. And Ben, did you know that France actually has a patron saint of pastry chefs? I didn't, but it doesn't surprise me, Jen. Is it Saint Profiterole? <laughs> That's close. Not quite. Okay. <laughs> it's Saint Honoré, which you might recognize as the name of a pastry. And Saint Honoré is the patron saint of bakers and pastry chefs. And legend has it that hundreds of years ago, a man from Amiens named Honoré was elected to become a bishop. But the family nursemaid, she didn't believe it. And she's in the middle of baking bread for the family. And she supposedly said that she would only believe the news if the baking tool that she was using at the time was put down into the ground and put out roots and turned itself into a tree. And apparently when the tool was put into the ground, it transformed into a mulberry tree. And so after hearing about this miracle, a Parisian baker donated a plot of land to construct a church, which started a bond between the bakers and pastry chefs and Saint-Honoré. Great story, Jen. So everyone should go out and buy a Saint-Honoré cake on May the 16th. But um, look, I imagine it's a bit different these days. How does someone go about becoming a pâtissier these days in France, Jen? Well, there are plenty of people who are still self-taught or who do it on a non-professional basis. But if you want to be a professional and actually work as a pâtissier, then you do have to follow a training. There's a two-year pastry training course, and then you get a diploma, which is called the Cap Pâtisserie. And then after that, most pastry chefs do continue their education. So they'll specialize in areas like chocolate or ice cream, for example. And then if you want to become a maître pâtissier, which is a master pâtissier, then you do need to stay in school for yet another degree. All right, I just want you to clear something up now. When I walk past a pâtisserie or boulangerie and you see this amazing display of posh cakes with fruit on the top, you know, in the windows or, or on the display counter, are these all made on site? Please tell me they are, Jen. Well, technically, French law does have a rule for boulangerie, that's bakery, and that means that this can only be used by artisans who actually knead the dough, ferment and shape it and bake the bread on site, but there actually isn't an equivalent for pastry making. So you'll find that shops do sell quote-unquote industrial pastries. A 2022 report found that it's probably close to half of the pastries in the boulangerie pâtisserie that are made on the premises. But if you really are looking for that made-in-shop experience, according to the Confederation of Pastry Chefs and Bakers, the best way to tell is to look for a fait maison label. And that's been given out to over a thousand pastry chefs across the country. Thanks, Jen. Right, guys, I'm going to put you on the spot now with a little French pastry quiz. Here we go. Emma, this one's for you. Which French pastry is sometimes called an escargot or snail? Oh, that's easy. That's my favourite breakfast pastry, a pan of raisin, because it's round like a snail. Good, good, good. Pretty easy, that one. Jen, which French city is famous for the cannelé? I think I pronounced that right. Oh, um, Bordeaux. Blumenel, you guys are hot. Okay, final one for either of you. In which part of France do people traditionally eat 13 desserts at Christmas? Oh, that's Provence. They eat the 13 desserts of Christmas. Do you Honestly, know anything about this? Yes, they're really, really disappointing because they're not actually desserts at all. It's just like dried fruit and nuts and whatever, and you have it after your Christmas dinner. I thought you got like 13 Grand whole brulee, cakes. Yeah, exactly. chocolate eclair. Right. <laughs> My top tip, though, if you want like lots of desserts after a meal is to get a café gourmand in a French restaurant because you get like a coffee and then you get like just small bits yes. of five or six different yeah. desserts is a very good way to end a meal. Definitely back that up. Any pastry recommendations, Jen? I think for me, it's a tie between the tarte tatin and the tarte fraise. Those are my favorites. What's a tarte tatin? It's like the apple. It's kind of similar to like an apple pie, All right. but it doesn't. it's not covered on the top. It's really good. Fantastic. There you go. Listen to some really good recommendations. Definitely go for Café Gourmand. Let's move on. 
Now, let's talk about life expectancy, guys. Uh, we're in France. France, I think, has pretty good life expectancy, Emma, but it's not quite even throughout the country. Tell us more. Absolutely, yeah. So we got some new exciting data this week from the European data agency Eurostat, which is exciting to me anyway, because I love numbers. And it's comparing life expectancy at birth across the EU. So in 2021, the average life expectancy at birth in the EU was 80.1 years. And the country where you can expect to live the longest is Spain. People in the Spanish capital, Madrid, live to a massive 88.2 years on average. But yeah, Spain is the highest, Italy is higher, and France are also you know, you get a good life expectancy of those three countries. The French average is 82.4 years. But the Eurostat data also breaks down which regions of France people live the longest in. And honestly, I was quite surprised at the result here. Yeah, look, we're, th- we're thinking Riviera. We're thinking maybe Alps, maybe like, I don't know, part of the Caribbean territory. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking the Riviera, actually, you know, sunshine, mm. fresh vegetables, mild mm. winters. But no, the region of France where people live the longest is Ile de France, aka the Greater Paris region. And that is despite the horrifying statistic from 2018 that said that the air quality in Paris is so bad that it's equivalent to smoking 183 cigarettes a year. Although in fairness, it has got better since then, thanks to all the bike lanes. But men here in Ile de France have a life expectancy of 80.6, while women live to be 88.6 on average. And actually, when you think about it, it's not super surprising and it does track with a sort of Europe-wide trend for people in cities to live longer. Yeah, hold on. But you mentioned this, you know, poor air quality, which I imagine is some of the worst in France. You know, there's Ile-de-France has some many of the most deprived areas in France. So why does Ile-de-France have the longest life expectancy in the country? Well, there's a few things, really. Um, the big one is healthcare. In any city, you are closer to a hospital if you have a medical emergency, like a heart attack, for example. France does also have this problem of what they call medical deserts, where there's a shortage of GPs and other sort of routine healthcare, and that's particularly bad in rural areas. So people in the cities probably go to the doctor more often, get more regular checkups, you know, spot health problems before they get bad. There's also the issue of wealth. Overall health trends globally indicate that well-off people are likely to have better health than poorer people. And that's true even in countries like France, where the healthcare is partially or entirely funded by the state. And when we look at wealth, Paris really hogs the money in France. In 2019, the GDP per head in Ile-de-France was €67,000, which is just way ahead of the second richest region of Enron-Alpes of €42,000. So people in the capital are statistically likely to be wealthy, although obviously there are pockets of poverty in the region too. Mm, I hear you. And I mean, it's notable actually that France's poorest region, Haute-de-France, which is kind of in the northeast of the country, has the lowest life expectancy at 80.5. I mean, I think that's probably also because it's the former industrial and coal mining area. So there will be a legacy of industrial industrial disease among people who worked in factories and coal mines, and it has health issues like high smoking and drinking rates. But in fact, when we look at sort of general health, cities often fare better than rural areas, even though you might think the rural lifestyle sounds much healthier. For example, people walk a lot more in the cities rather than taking the car. And when we look at areas of France where people eat the highest amounts of convenience food and ready meals, they tend to be rural as well. Ile de France has the lowest smoking rates in the country, the lowest drinking rates in the country, and the joint lowest obesity rates in France, along with Brittany. So it's probably actually not that surprising when you think about it. Overall, the life expectancy in France is 82.4. So that's better than the UK, 80.9. So we made the right choice there, Ben. And Jen has actually extended her life by a whopping five years by moving to France because the average life expectancy in the US is just 77.2. Yeah, but she's had 350 tatins since she's lived here. <laughs> that might be that's that knocked too. about 10 years off. Jen, did you move to France because of life expectancy rates? 
Yeah, I have to say it was a big consideration a big for difference. me at, at age 24. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, sh- I should caveat that by saying that these are average life expectancy rates, so it's not guaranteed. But Really interesting, though, I'd have never have put Ile-de-France as the part of France with the highest life expectancy rate. Thanks for that, Emma. It's time to look ahead to next year now because the end of 2023 is creeping closer and closer. And one big issue for our listeners and readers has been the cost of living in France, which has gone up in recent years. Jen, let's talk about the outlook for next year and whether things are going to get pricier in France. Tell us more. Yeah, so it does look like things are going to get pricier in France. Over the last two years, France has mostly managed to keep its inflation rate pretty low in comparison to its EU counterparts. And that's mostly thanks to consumer protection measures like the energy price cap. At one point in 2022, France actually had an inflation rate of 6.2%, which was the lowest on the continent at the time. Other countries were seeing upwards of 9%. But in 2023, other European countries were starting to see their inflation levels drop by quite a lot. By July, France's inflation rate was 5.7%, which was higher than the Eurozone average of 5.3%, and it was the seventh highest in the EU. And experts think that this has to do with the fact that France tends to put strong measures into protecting people during a moment of crisis or inflation, but then it has a harder time getting out of the situation later on. Consumer specialist Rodolphe Bonas told Econostrom in October that in France, it works both ways. At the beginning, things go a little less badly and evolve less quickly, but in the end, it's a little bit more complicated. That being said, France's economy minister, Bruno Le Maire, seems to think that the crisis is over. He has predicted that the inflationary crisis is behind us and that inflation in France will fall to 2.6% in 2024. That sounds like good news, but that doesn't mean life in France will get cheaper in 2024, though. Let's look at some specifics for us, Jen. First up. Yeah, so first up is food. This is an area where France really has seen some significant price increases. Like inflation generally, France was doing quite well in comparison to the rest of Europe. In January, France actually had the lowest food inflation out of the seven Western European countries, just behind Belgium. But as of September, France actually had an inflation rate for food of 9.5%, making it the second worst, again, after Belgium. Uh, That being said, even if France's food inflation is higher than its neighbors, it has still been dropping. So in October, inflation went down to 7.7% for food. And the French government has worked on making deals with supermarkets and manufacturers to keep costs low for consumers. So for example, um, freezing the prices of at least 5,000 essential items, um, which would mean that those prices won't increase at the start of 2024. Now, to be fair, costs also differ based on the region. So groceries tend to be less expensive in Western France and most expensive in the capital region and in the Southeast. Uh, We've actually got a pretty cool interactive map on our website if you want to check out where groceries are more expensive versus less in France. Okay, so that's food, groceries. What about gas and electricity, Jen? This has been an area where France has been pretty protected from price increases in the past, right? Yeah. So if you remember correctly, France put in place an energy price shield during the post-COVID recovery period and at the start of the war in Ukraine. And this was meant to protect households from sharp price increases in gas and electric. And by many measures, it did. But looking ahead to 2024, there is a good chance that you'll see your energy bills go up in France. First of all, it's because the country already scrapped the cap on gas price increases. That happened over the summer because gas prices had dropped. So France's principal gas provider, GRDF, is going to set new tariff rates in July 2024. And while this is still subject to change, GRDF is reportedly looking at an increase of 30%. That could mean for households an increase in bills of up to 11.3%. And that depends 
on how much your household uses gas in your home. So whether or not you use it for cooking or whether or not you use it just to heat the home. And then secondly, France is slowly phasing out the price cap on electricity increases. Now, this cap itself won't be done away with until 2025, but the government is allowing incremental increases. And according to the environment minister, the next price raise, which is scheduled for February 2024, is not expected to exceed 10%. And when the government allowed price raises of the same amount in July, it meant an increase of about 150 euro per year for the average household. So that's about what we can expect in February. Okay, so energy bills are going up. Now, what about the thing that I'm particularly interested in, Jen and drivers? Am I going to pay through the roof for petrol diesel next year? So petrol is actually one area where we have a pretty clear idea. So the French oil and gas giant Total Total Energy, uh, who operates about a third of France's service stations, promised that they would keep their 199 per liter price cap through 2024. So that does leave out the other service stations in France, and some of them, especially those that are partnered with supermarkets, tend to have deals and discounts over the weekends, but it remains to be seen whether those will continue into the new year. Since late September, petrol prices have been declining in France, and as of mid-November, SP95 was, on average, 189 a liter, but crude oil prices are linked to international tensions. And so the situations in the Middle East and in Ukraine will play a role and we'll see what happens in the coming months for these conflicts. But if you're driving in France, you don't only have to think about petrol, you should also think about toll prices. And whether or not those increase will depend on whether or not a new tax on motorways goes through in 2024. And if it does, then France's leading motorway operator has said that toll prices could increase by 5% in February. Well, it's a fairly hefty increase. And Jen, you've also looked at health care in France in 2024. So as a quick refresher, France's healthcare system works with reimbursements. So you pay out of pocket at your doctor appointment and then you're reimbursed later. That doctor's appointment is going to be a bit more expensive in the new year. Well, technically it already is because this came into effect at the start of November. GP appointments rose by €1.50. This means that your usual doctor visit that would have cost €25 in October is now €26.50. You'll still have the same reimbursement rate from the state of 70%, though. And if you don't have complimentary insurance, you're going to see your out-of-pocket costs go up. So for a standard GP appointment, that would go from 750 to 795 mm, Most people in France do have complimentary insurance, Jen. They're called Mutuelle. Are Mutuelles going up next year? They are predicted to go up by 8% in 2024. Um, but obviously that 8% differs based on the cost of your Mutuelle. So older people tend to have more expensive Mutuelles. Families pay more than, say, young single people. And of course, employers usually cover half of that. I think it's a good time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, once again, who joins us from Normandy. I asked John whether it's true that France's intense state intervention in 2022 has now led to higher inflation and also whether he sees any big problems for the French government ahead in 2024, given the cost of living is going to shoot up. Well, you know, economics is not by strong suit in the figures and the, the calculations are complicated. And it's clearly true that by spending 100 billion euros, was it over a year or so to keep down energy prices, especially, that therefore they're now having to sort of relax that a little and we're due another 10% increase in electricity prices in the new year, probably. So having lifted that so-called shield against inflation, then inflation has gone up while other countries are actually coming down. I see Britain yesterday is now down to 4.6, 4.7%. But inflation is always measured by what went before. So in a sense, that's 46 
on what was a higher figure a year ago or last month, you know. So it's very difficult to sort of work out who's doing well here. It would take a very, very complicated artificial intelligence type program to decide who's done better. Has the government's 100 billion euros actually taken put get money in French pockets or is that money being taken out again now? I think overall it was politically necessary when the government did it. There was enough contention, as you know, at the beginning of this year with that. People are also being faced with huge electricity bills, uh, extra electricity bills as they were in other countries, especially Britain and in Germany, I think. So it was necessary from a political point of view, whether economically it made sense. People at the time said it was sort of storing up problems when you had to lift the subsidies uh, eventually. I think overall, I think the government feels that it did the right thing and that it will get away with this a slightly uh, higher inflation in than other countries. But I'm sure there are opposition politicians who will make the most of it. John, looking ahead to 2024 and, and prices rising, what do you see the biggest problem for the government being? Is it food, electricity, petrol? Yeah, I always, I always look at the, um, I, I have an electric car, so it doesn't affect me, but I always look at the big totems outside the, the rural petrol stations. They're a bit like a kind of sort of physical impulse of, of rural opinion, you know, where petrol prices are. They're not too bad at the moment. They're below two euros a, a, a litre. Time of the Gilets Jaunes movement five years ago, they were furious because it had gone to one euros 50 a litre for diesel, and now it's sort of 180, 190 or something like that around here. So that's obviously one to look at. That's beyond the government's control in a way. It's about... Uh, petrol and diesel prices on world markets. Electricity, I think, will be going up by 10%. The government is hinting at that in, in, in January, and no doubt there'll be some fury about that, even though that is a kind of delayed increase for what everyone else has had to pay in other countries for months already, as we just said. Food seems to be declining in price. You know, uh, I think there is general deflationary move going on across the world and across Western countries, so that may not be too bad. So it's difficult to know. I suspect electricity might be the real flashpoint. Is there any signs of rebellion? I don't see any signs of the Gilets Jaunes coming back, quite frankly, around here. Um, they seem to have been discredited by what happened four or five years ago in, in the end. But who knows? You know, They came out of left field, out of blue sky in a way. Um, so the next big thing will come out of the blue sky as well, a different kind of rebellion maybe. Thanks, John. And thanks, uh, Jen, for all that info. And you got a, a great article on our website, the local.fr, about all the cost of living issues in France next year and just how expensive life here will become. Let's move on to our final item this week. We want to talk about perhaps the world's most famous Frenchman. Is that fair to say? I think Napoleon. Why are we talking about Napoleon, Emma? Uh, because there's a big new film coming out simply called Napoleon. You'll see billboards for this absolutely everywhere at the moment. And already criticism is being levelled that Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix's film is not historically accurate. i got to say the director Ridley Scott himself doesn't seem too bothered. He told people who were criticising the inaccuracies in his film to, quote, get a life. And I mean, to be fair, this is a Hollywood blockbuster. It's not a documentary, so it's really more about entertainment. But I think um, in some ways it actually carries on what is a very old tradition, which is myth-making, fake news, or even downright lies about Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm, of which you've added to yourself, Emma, and I'll come to that uh, <laughs> before the end. Uh, on the subject of myths about Napoleon, just let's clear up a few then. Let's start with a simple one that I referred to in the introduction. Was Napoleon uh, little? Uh, no, no, he was not. Um, Seriously? Seriously? 
No, not really. Not particularly. Um, So, yeah, I mean, he's even given his name to the famous English phrase, Napoleon complex, meaning a person, usually a man, who compensates for being physically short with angry or aggressive behaviour. But it's not true that he was particularly short. Napoleon was five foot seven, which is 170 centimetres, which is not massive, but for the time was entirely average height for a man. Interesting. Um, And the short myth actually comes from Britain, specifically British cartoonists who drew Napoleon as a a sort of petulant child or a baby which progressed into making him unusually short as a way of mocking him. And actually his French nickname is Le Petit Caporal, the the little corporal, but that was actually originally bestowed by his soldiers as a sort of affectionate name. It's not taking the piss out of his height at all. Although in modern French, if you call someone a Petit Caporal, it means that they're a a workplace tyrant or just a a terrible boss. I've never used this myself, obviously. Of course not. (laughs) Really interesting. Okay, another one here then. Uh, Napoleon was a complete failure with the ladies possibly impotent, and his wife cheated on him. True or false? Yeah, so, sort of mostly false, I think, although the, the impotence is, so we're not so sure. But this one, again, the fault of the British, who intercepted a letter from Napoleon to his wife, Josephine, complaining about her infidelity, and they published it in order to embarrass him. I mean, in fairness, the two countries were at war at the time, so this is kind of wartime propaganda. But yes, the British, again, have mm. responsibility for this one. In reality, it seems that actually both of them had affairs. Napoleon fathered at least one illegitimate child. He later divorced Josephine and married an Austrian aristocrat in order to get himself an heir. So I think you could say he wasn't exactly a perfect husband, but maybe not a complete failure with the ladies. And also, Josephine, famously, that is not actually her name. Her name was Marie-Joseph Rose, Tasha de la Pagerie. She was always known by her friends as Rose, but Napoleon decided he didn't like that name. He rechristened her Josephine, uh, and that's how she's known as history. In my opinion, massive red flag if you're marrying someone. Yeah, this is fascinating. Uh, and one they often like to brush over in France, Emma, slightly more serious when it comes to honouring the memory of their great emperor. Did Napoleon reintroduce slavery? Uh, Yeah, this one is true. And it's a big part of the reason why his reputation in modern France is complicated, to say the Mm. least. He's certainly not any kind of straightforward national hero. And many people actually prefer not to celebrate him or mark his anniversaries at all. France had abolished slavery at the time of the revolution. But in 1802, Napoleon decided to reintroduce it in France's overseas territories or colonies, especially in the Caribbean, where slaves were forced to work on sugar plantations in pretty horrific conditions. Slavery was finally abolished for a second and final time in 1848, which was long after Napoleon himself had been deposed. Okay, now one of the things you often read in articles like on our website about strange, bizarre laws in France is that it is illegal to name a pig Napoleon. Was this down to him? Is this true? Um, This is a really strangely enduring myth. Like you say, you read it all all the time and it's never true. There is no record of any law existing that covered the naming of pigs in any way or of anyone being prosecuted over the name of their pig. So I don't really know where this came from. There was a law that was published in 1881, so this is long after after Napoleon had died, that made it illegal to be rude about the president of France. And this was technically only abolished in 2013, after the European Court of Human Rights ruled that a protester could not be prosecuted for telling Nicolas Sarkozy, president at the time, to casse-toi, pauvre con, which broadly translates as get lost, dickhead. So it's now now entirely legal to be rude about the president of France. Right, okay. And finally, uh, Emma, I've read on The Local, actually, that Napoleon used to, um, for want of a better expression, uh, place his balls, his testicles, should we say, in a glass of red wine to wind up his soldiers. Is there any truth in this? And why have I read it on The Local? This, I must confess, is not true. This is an April Fool, in fact, that we it put on the, Fool, right. on the local. Explain but more. 
Um, well, we do a regular word or phrase of the day and they're usually like colloquial expressions, sometimes quite rude. And on April 1st, we do a false one and we give it a story. Uh, and we came up with the, the phrase, the van rouge, which means balls in red wine, in red meaning wine. to be happy and said it was a Napoleon myth. But it's 100% not true. I, I just think I'm following in this long tradition of English people making up lies about Napoleon. So I stand by that. It's a good one. It's still online, although we have, we have made it clear that it is not true, to be fair. Yes, it is a poisson d'avril, an oh, April fool. Indeed. So look, uh, maybe this film isn't the best if it's full of myths about Napoleon to learn about French history. Have we got any good recommendations for readers and listeners to learn a bit about French history? Yeah, the uh, the film I like is called La Reine Margot. It's from a few uh, a few years ago and it covers the period of the sort of religious wars in France between Protestants and Catholics. It's a little bit like a prototype Game of Thrones, actually. The characters spend most of the film either having sex with each other, even if they're related, or killing each other in spectacularly bloody ways. But honestly, the more I read about that period, the more I think it's actually not too far off being accurate. It's a very strange and dramatic time of history, but it's called La Reine Margot starring Isabel Ajani. All right, very good, Jen. I'm going to get laughed at for recommending this, but I actually recommend The Three Musketeers d'Artagnan. You mean the cartoon? <laughs> no, no, the new movie that just came out last year. It uh. was really interesting historically because the cardinal, the bad guy, he was actually a real historical figure. And so when I was watching the film, I just kept finding myself going through French Wikipedia pages trying to understand the history. And the Three Musketeers actually were real people. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. You should definitely watch it and then have a Wikipedia page open next to you. All right. I love the cartoon. Um, so, you know, if that's something to go by. I like this. Fantastic, guys. Thanks for those recommendations. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Just a reminder to listeners to keep an eye out for our survey and fill in the questions that you want us to answer in our special episode that we'll produce around New Year time. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. And thanks, John. And we'll be back with more on Talking France next week. 